chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as we are going through the New Testament. And in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, the title this morning is The Collection for Needy Believers. The Collection for Needy Believers. Kind of a, <clears throat> a different study in the sense that, you know, it's not a particular topic that Paul's going to speak about this morning as he closes this first letter. But in this chapter, we'll find an assortment of topics as he's wrapping up this letter to the Corinthian church. So there's several topics that he's going to talk about. And the first thing that he wants to talk about this morning is the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to talk about several other things. Paul's going to talk about opportunities as well as opposition. He's going to talk about watching. He's going to talk about praying. He's going to talk about the conduct of, of the church. And he'll talk about the true test of doctrine. And he'll talk about that which is spiritual. And though he's talking about all these different subjects, it's the church that he has in mind when it comes to all of these things. So like I said, we're now coming to the end of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Remember in last week when we were in chapter 15, Paul taught on the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the Christian. He talked about the rapture. Great, <clears throat> great topic. And it would have been a great way to end 1 Corinthians. But, again, now he talks about these, these different topics because, again, it, it's, it's wrapping up uh, his, his thoughts about the, the church in Corinth there in this first letter. But as we come to the, to the end now, uh, and, and then maybe in the second letter, like, like I said, he left, left off with the rapture and the resurrection and just a, a great finish, a great you know, topic. You would think that now we'd be expecting the second letter and it would tell us more about heavenly things. But as we've learned or should have learned by now, God sees things differently. Yeah, it would have been a great chapter to end, or 15 would have been great to end the book. But then he has this one last chapter where he talks about all these different things. Like I said, as we've learned and should or sort of learned by now, God sees things differently. We can't always enjoy <clears throat> the mountaintop experiences like Peter, James, and John did on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have to come down to face the trials and the troubles of the world below. And you probably, many of you, if not all, have been to a maybe a women's conference, a men's conference, a, a marriage conference, a Bible conference. You know, and you're... you're you're in a nice place and you're, you're the, you don't have to deal with the responsibilities of life, you know, during the conference. And you're just having a wonderful time of studying the word, having fellowship. And, you know, it comes the last day. How many times you hear, oh, I wish it wouldn't end. Oh, I don't want to go back home. I don't want to go back down and start dealing with all the problems. Well, that's life. You know, it would be wonderful if we could stay on those, all those mountaintop experiences. But... Uh, we have to go back down below and face the trials and the troubles of the world. One minute, Paul is telling us about the rapture, chapter 15. 
He's telling us about the resurrection. And now he's going to talk about a collection for the poor and needy at Jerusalem. But he's also going to talk about his personal plans, his missionary plans. He's going to talk about those wondrous things that are, that, that are still to come, but yet they seem so far away. And you know, the holiest thing is we need balance. We need the balance between the present and the future. If we were writing this letter, we probably would have stopped with the rapture and the resurrection in chapter 15, leaving the reader wanting more. But as always, the Holy Spirit knows what's needed. The Holy Spirit knows what we need to hear. To God, taking care of some poor believers in a faraway place is just as important and interesting as exciting truth about the world to come. But Paul starts this last chapter here with needs. He gives some common sense here for taking collections. Something that should be real important to us and to the church. Common sense on taking collections. Why? One of the, <clears throat> one of the favorite topics of people when it comes to churches, oh, they're only in it for the money. Or all they ever do is talk about money. Or this guy, he's always, you know, wanting money. And, and the sad thing is, many times it's, a, it's the truth. But if you would follow God's principles, I don't know how those people would, would say the things they do and do the things that they do. Because God is very, you know, concerned about how we deal with money. God doesn't need our money. Our God is rich. And if he wants us to have money, he'll give it to us for, for whatever reason. If not, fine. If God wants to, a, a, a church to shut down, it's his church. And I remember Pastor Chuck Smith used to tell us in the pastor's conference, hey, if, if, it's God's ministry. If God wants to shut it down, don't put it on a, on a life support system. Don't try to keep it going if God's trying to shut it down. It's his, it's his church. It's his responsibility. And you know, that was great advice by Pastor Chuck. So Paul starts out here with this collection for the needy people in Jerusalem with a common rule. Look at verses 1 and 2 as he begins in chapter 16. Paul says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul has in mind a collection of money for the poor believers at Jerusalem, which he was promoting throughout the Gentile churches that he planted. Paul was always thinking about these poor saints. Why? Well, because remember, during the days before Paul was saved, he was probably the reason for many of these people being poor. As he's now talking to them, and he sees their faces, and he gets to know them. They remind him of the terrible things that he did before he was a Christian, persecuting the church, ruining many of those people's lives causing them to lose belongings and jobs and families. And Paul wanted so badly to make things right 
So Paul saw this collection as one way that the Gentiles, those were non-Jews, the Gentiles in the church could repay part of their spiritual debt to the Jerusalem church. And besides that, he had promised the apostles at Jerusalem that he would remember the poor. He was gladly then carrying out his promise. Two general rules are seen here. Their giving, the people's giving, was to be organized. It was to be done in a methodical and systematic way. Paul knew that God was a God of order. God had said, uh, uh, Paul had said earlier to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, he said, let all things be done decently and in order. So the people were to put something aside and save it. And Sunday after Sunday, each member would make their contribution to this collection for the poor. No percentage was required. Paul didn't say, hey, you guys have to put in so much. This is, this is, what, you know, this is the requirement. He didn't, he didn't put, put out a number. He didn't put a percentage out to be required. Each person was to give based on their income, their circumstances, and most of all, his personal devotion to the Lord. In other words, okay, if God has blessed me, I may be able to give more than somebody that, that is having a difficult time. And, and God just says, give based on what you have, not what you don't have. But most of all, give based on your personal devotion to I give to my God because I love him and because of what he's done for me. I could never outgive God. So it's a personal thing. It's a devotional thing. And that's what God's, that's what God's common, common rule is. Not only that, there was to be no high-pressure tactics with the people's giving. There was, Paul said, don't, don't take up this collection when I'm there. Paul was saying, don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Because Paul didn't want to intimidate anybody because of who he was. He didn't want to intimidate any because of his authority, his presence, his persuasiveness and personality. He didn't want to be any kind of influence on their giving. You know, they might have seen Paul, you know, in the congregation. They say, oh, Paul's here. I better you know, give a little more here. You know, he's getting intimidated. No. And there are those who do that. And I remember Kathy and I and a pastor friend and his wife and some other people, we went to this I think it was a dinner of some kind. This was a long time, but this is when we were first Christians. And we went there, we were listening to a speaker, and, and you know, they're at the end of the speaker speaking, you know, they wanted to, make, to, uh, they wanted to take a collection. And they put ushers by the door and basically said, we don't want anybody to leave until you give a certain amount of money. I couldn't believe it. You know, and... We were, we were about ready to walk out of there, and, um, but we just didn't want to be rude. But nonetheless, that was, uh, that was the tactic. Placing ushers by the door. We don't want anybody to leave until you give. Well, that's not what God does. You know, and, and that shouldn't be done by any church, by any leader. You know, the Bible does not teach us that. There's to be no high-pressure tactics in giving, and, 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 you know, there, there's no doubt that Paul himself could have told some pretty sad stories about his own personal needs. And a lot of times that's the thing. Oh, poor me. I don't have this and I don't have that, you know. And, you know, and, and Paul could have done that. He could have t- 
told pretty sad stories about other people's needs. And he probably would have been pretty convincing and he probably would have collected a lot of money. The people probably would have been moved by their emotions. And you see many of these commercials that just, and not knocking, you know, there are people's needs and stuff, but a lot of times they play on people's emotions. And then people end up giving by impulse and then later on they kick themselves for giving because they go, oh man, I, you know, I just, I just moved by my emotions. A lot of evangelists today use high pressure tactics to get the money. And this is what brings disgrace to the Lord's work. It brings disgrace to the church. It brings, brings disgrace to Christianity. More importantly, it brings disgrace upon the Lord. It displeases him, and rightly so. All giving, especially for special causes, should be done not in the heat of the moment, but after carefully and prayerfully thinking about everything that's involved. And when you're in a calmer situation like your home where you can think things over. Now, Paul moves on. He says, next, Paul turns to carrying out the plan in verses 3 through 4. And he says, now, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So the first thing they should do is choose the men that will take their love gift to Jerusalem. And it was typical to Paul to involve other people as much as possible in the Lord's work. Paul was not a dictator, but he was very assertive. He was a take charge kind of guy when it came to matters of faith and morals and God's work. But he knew when and where to draw the line. He was very open when it came to other people choosing uh, things and, and, their, and taking their course of action. Now, why should those who donated for the collection, who donated for the money for this poor, why should they uh, choose who they want to deliver it? Well, they, they, they should choose the men, but Paul would send them. He wouldn't just endorse them. He says he, he might even go with them. Can you imagine what a learning experience that would be for the men that would go with Paul to deliver that collection? Think about it. The prayer meetings with Paul. The Bible studies on the boat. What an opportunity having Paul, you know, open the word of God every day and to teach them and they can ask questions and, and learn of his plans and how, how to do ministry the Lord's way. Not only that, to be able to meet Christians and churches all along the way and learn more about the great heart that Paul had for God's people everywhere. And then along the journey, on this long journey, you know, it would surely give them opportunities to evangelize and to win people to Jesus. So a trip like this with a teacher like Paul, I mean, that would be, you know, more valuable than, than time in a seminary. Now we turn to Paul's vision. He's going to come soon to Corinth in verses 5 through 9. And he's going to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. He first mentions his future plans in verses 5 through 6, and then he tells them what he'd like, uh, when, when he'd like to be there. Notice in verse 5. He said, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. So he tells them there in verse 5 when he'd like to be there. And then he tells them what he'd like to do in verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Now this speaks about flexibility. All right, this shows the need for flexibility as a servant of God. 
At this point, it seems like Paul planned to stay in Ephesus, where there was a revival taking place, but at least for a little bit longer. Then he would cross over into Macedonia, most likely to visit and encourage the churches that he planted in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And from there, he'd go on to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 1.15, we find that these plans were changed. Paul decided to visit Corinth twice, and he'd take a different route, and he'd visit Corinth. And once on his way to Macedonia, and again on his way back. And eventually, that plan was also changed because of the unpredictable situation that developed in Ephesus. What this teaches us is how the Lord leads and guides in the life of a believer and how we need to be flexible. You know, we need to be flexible when it comes to serving the Lord. Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. He said, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Be, in, be ready in season and out of season. Not even with a great apostle like Paul is everything cut and dry. And you know that, when even as a believer, nothing's cut and dry with the Lord. God often uses our changing circumstances to suggest, hey, there's a change of plans. There's a change of direction. And without a doubt, it's often easier to see how the Lord has led us looking back. And a lot of times we, we look back at how God did something, how he, he, he led us, and then we say, oh, that's what He's going to be doing now. That's how He did it back there, and that's what He's going to do now. No. Not necessarily true. You know, it's easier to recognize what he's done in the past and how he did it in the past than to recognize in the midst of pressure and problems what he's going to do. And so we have to learn to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways and then rest confidentially in his, in his sovereign overruling of circumstances to direct our path. Again, we need to have that flexibility because God you know, changes things in the midst of something and sometimes and, and we've got to go with the flow. And at this point, Paul hoped to come to Corinth and to spend the winter there. You see, when any kind of travel was especially dangerous, he'd, you'd spend the winter there in, in that place. And so these were Paul's future plans. And then he goes on now to, to mention his uh, immediate plans. His thoroughness in present service, notice is mentioned in verse 7. He says, for, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Paul didn't want to make his visit to Corinth a rush visit. He did really want to spend some quality time there with the Corinthian church. But in the meantime, he intended to visit a little longer in Ephesus. Look at verse 8. But I will tarry or wait in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why would he wait? It was a place of a lot of great opportunities. There were some great opportunities that he could, he could, you know, he could take part in there. Look at verse 9. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul says, hey, man, there's a great effective door open to me, man. There's a lot of chance for ministry here. There's a lot of ch uh, chances to do the Lord's work here. So he says, I'm going to stay. But understand, he also did say, notice, there are many adversaries. And wherever you find an effective work of God, you're going to find the enemy trying to stop that work. We need to recognize that opposition 
it is to be a challenge, not a defeat. When Satan comes in and he tries to interrupt a work, interfere with the work, and it causes to, do, to cause delays or problems, it's not a defeat. It is a challenge. Because remember, Satan's a defeated foe. Christ is the victor, and he's going to get the victory. So we need to recognize that. That Satan is going to stop any, he's going to try to stop any forward progress on ministry. Not since his great victory over Adam and Eve in the garden. That is Satan's great victory over the, the, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Has Satan feared and dreaded anything the way he fears and dreads Christianity, Christ, and the church? Satan can't take it easy. Satan can't let up. Satan has to be constantly on the attack. He can't afford to pass up one single chance to hinder the progress of the church. And Satan recognizes that the most difficult obstacle to his plans ever organized on this planet is the church. Right here. His greatest dread, his greatest obstacle to doing what he wants to do is the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 18, he says, upon this rock, and he was speaking about himself. He's that rock. He said, upon this rock, me, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's been said that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint on his knees. The kneeling Christian is a great threat to the devil. How much more must Satan have trembled at the apostleship and the anointing and the boldness and the determination of Paul? He knew Paul. He knew how powerful Paul was. He knew how determined Paul was. And he knew that Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing could stop this guy. Imprisonments couldn't stop Paul. Threats couldn't stop Paul. Beatings couldn't stop Paul. Hunger and thirst couldn't stop Paul. Shipwrecks couldn't stop Paul. Nothing could stop Paul. Not even death. If you put Paul in prison... What did he do? He converted the prisoners and the jailers. He, he, say, he, he, led, he converted half of Nero's Praetorian Guard when he was in the palace, in prison in the palace. If you turn Paul loose, he, evangel, he evangelizes whole continents. If you persecute him, he draws closer to the Lord. If you threaten his churches, Paul writes Holy Spirit-inspired letters, like the ones that we have that inspire and inform countless generations of Christians. And if you kill him, you simply make him a martyr and you promote him to glory. How, how we need Paul's today. Paul's. A man that just you know, did so many mighty things. But he wasn't any more special than anybody here. He just had a devotion and a commitment to the Lord that God used Paul called the opportunities that he was taking advantage of in Ephesus here great, a great and effective door. Paul had seen Holy Spirit revivals before, but nothing like what he was seeing here or in the book of Acts. Not only was Ephesus being, rich, but, but being reached, but also the cities around Ephesus were being reached with the gospel. Churches were popping up everywhere. 
They're popping up in Colossae, Eropolis, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Troas. They were all being taken by storm. Satan's kingdom was being shaken to the very foundation. And a kingdom that couldn't be shaken was being established. God's kingdom. Paul knew he had a ton of enemies. And Paul knew that he could expect a heavy and strong satanic counterattack before long. Satan does not wait long at all to jump into the thick of things when you are serving God and you have an effective door being opened. As much as, he wanted, as, much as Paul wanted to come to Corinth to comfort and correct and, and, and confront, it clearly wasn't the right time for him. And from now, for now, the Corinthians would have to make with this letter. They'd have to settle for this letter. Then see him Paul in person. But it was a question of balancing one set of needs against another and trusting the Holy Spirit through it all. The Holy Spirit, the true Lord of the harvest, to trust him to keep the devil back and to lead and to direct his servant in his own infallible way. And then Paul now turns to news in verses 10 through 12. He says, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me before I am, uh, before I am waiting for him with the, with the brethren. Verse 12, he goes on to say, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has convenient time. So Paul first talks about his beloved son, Timothy. It seems that, that, that Paul had already sent Timothy and Erastus to Corinth. Now, Erastus was an important convert to Paul. Paul was hoping that Erastus would add some weight to young Timothy's presence when they arrived. Timothy, he was young, he was timid, he was fearful of, of going to Corinth and maybe having to deal with some of those intellectuals and legalists there. So Paul says, hey, send Erastus to be with Timothy, you know, to help him out, to, to, to make him feel comforted and to, and to give him strength. So again, Paul was hoping that he would get there and just, you know, uh, just add to Timothy's presence. In any case, Paul is opening and making the way for Timothy there. Timothy was, like I said, a timid man. Look what it says over in verse 10 again. It says, by the grace of God, I, uh, uh, I got the wrong one there. Verse 10, it says, um, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you. Notice, without fear, without fear. Timothy and Erastus had traveled over land to, to Corinth through Macedonia. Paul seems to have had some questions in his mind as to whether or not he would make it all the way to Corinth. Since he was now writing the last two or three paragraphs of his letter, it was very likely that it would get there before Timothy. So the ones carrying this letter would likely take a ship to Corinth and could be expected to get there before Timothy did. So Paul's words here are about his young assistant. And no doubt, Timothy who had somewhat of a, of a timid personality. 
Timothy felt strongly about his personal inadequacy. And how many times that we do, oh, I can't do that, or, you know, I, I don't know enough, and, and those people are smarter than me, or whatever. And this is the kind of thing that Timothy was feeling. He felt that he couldn't face up to the, the Corinthian intellectuals. But this is so neat about Paul. Paul wasn't counting on Timothy's cleverness. He was counting on God to help Timothy. And that's what we always remember. It's not about our cleverness. It's not about how smart I am. It's about depending upon God's wisdom and being led by God and allowing Him to, to direct my way. So, Paul is doing the best he can to help Timothy get there and, and to, you know, to carry on his ministry there. So Paul's smoothing his way the best they can. They weren't, they weren't to try to intimidate Timothy. He might have been a young man, but you know what? He and the Apostle Paul were partners. And in, in, in Timothy's own young way, he was just as much a servant of the Lord as Paul was. But Paul says, hey guys, Erastus and everybody there in the corner, put Timothy at ease. Don't look down on him because he's young and because he may be a little timid and a little fearful. Even though as much as Paul appreciated Timothy's true worth, again, he was a bit afraid. Paul was even a bit afraid that the sophisticated Corinthians might try to bully young and timid Timothy. But the Corinthians knew Timothy because he had joined Paul there at the time that Paul evangelized the city of Corinth. And also having carried out the, a commission, Timothy carried out a commission for Paul at Thessalonica. Again, Timothy was a timid man, but he was a true man. Look at verse 11 again. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with his brethren. Timothy was a timid man, but he was a true man. Just because a brother is young or experienced does not give anyone the right to look down on him. You can imagine what Timothy would be up against in Corinth. Because the church at Corinth, when you, when you first began reading about it, it said, Paul said they didn't lack in any gift. The church had an extraordinary number of very gifted and competent men. The problem was they were carnal. Timothy would have to deal with the intellectuals. He'd have to deal with the legalists. And there were those who were impatient of anything or anyone that, that, that wasn't eloquent in the pulpit or, or in debate. Because the, the intellects, you know, if you were, again, if you weren't eloquent and you weren't quick on the, on the draw, they, they, they'd look down on you. They wouldn't have anything to do with you. They, if you weren't absolutely an eloquent person, they were impatient with you. So there were those who were obsessed with, and the, there were those who were obsessed with the gift of tongues. They'd be scornful of Paul's downgrading of the whole thing. And then not to mention the women who were angry at Paul's probably uh, instructions earlier in chapter, uh, I think, 14 about the role of women in the church. So one way or another, Timmy might well have been fearful about his ability to deal with those, uh, those people in Corinth, Corinthian, uh, in Corinth. So Paul's basically saying through all of this, hey, hands off my assistant. Hands off my assistant. He's my, he, he's my friend, my partner, my co-laborer. 
Paul says, I'm expecting him back here when he's done over there. And he said, this, he's telling him, you are going to have to deal with me if you take out your resentments on him. Notice the team spirit. Now Paul has something to say about Apollos in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So Apollos, if you remember, was an eloquent Jew who was brought into the full understanding of the gospel by Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18. Apollos had ministered with great power at Corinth. And there was a part of the church there that felt attached to him. And it's very unlikely that Apollos, you know, encouraged that kind of a thing, that he encouraged this division. His great concern seemed to be to preach Christ, and that should always be our main concern, to preach Christ. In spite of the division, you know, that Apollos fan club who just said, hey, Apollos, he's the greatest, man. In spite of that, that those, those, those group of people that followed Apollos, Paul didn't hesitate to encourage Apollos to go back to Corinth for more ministry. And it's clear that there was no envy on Paul's part or a sense of competition on the part of Apollos. Apollos and Paul weren't competitors. They were equal servants in the Lord. Paul wasn't envious of Apollos because he was an eloquent speaker. I mean, Paul was too, but, you know, there's that personal touch. They weren't competing. They were serving together. Paul didn't have the authority to place men against their will. Apollos didn't feel he, he should go to Corinth at that time. So Paul had to go with Apollos' decision. You see, here's the neat thing about Paul too. And we need to learn from this. Paul was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading of other people. And that's important for us to grasp. Because many times, you may know somebody that's going through a tough time, a difficult situation. And one of the things we like to say, based on what we think, oh, God doesn't want you to go through that. Really? You know what God wants them to go through and don't want them to go through? I understand the thought behind it. We don't want them to go through it because it's sad, it's hard, it's difficult. But God uses hard and difficult situations to bring us to our knees, to bring it to that place of maturity that he wants to take us to. So Paul didn't say, hey, no, you get down here right away. No, but it's not a convenient time. Paul says, no, you come. No, he didn't. He was sensitive to other people's leading of the Holy Spirit in their life. We can pray with them and we can, you know, help them in, in, in sharing counsel with them if they ask for it and, and they, want, they want to know what we think. Bottom line is that they need to pray and they need to, you know, wait out the Lord and what the Lord says and, and follow them. Because many times we, in giving our opinion, are saying, oh, no, God doesn't want you to go through that. We then interfere with what God may be doing in that person's life. And that's sad. God knows what's best for a person. I don't. And so we need to be careful. We need to be like Paul and, and not interfere or be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading of other people. It's, it's great the way that these men all work together. You know, doing, not coming, yes, coming, doing this. And, and they were all supporting each other. No argument in the different uh, decisions that, that the guys were making. 
And maybe it was because of the divisions in the church that Paul gave this warning. Now look at verses 13 and 14. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. The word watch here simply means be alert, be vigilant. The enemy is always close by and we are never safe from his attack. And Satan would, would definitely attack the church and try to hinder the church and try to stop the ministry of Timothy or Apollos. And then the letter closes with various notes in verses 13 through 24. But first Paul had some practical comments and principles for powerful living in verses 13 and 14 again. He said, you know what? He said, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. He was telling them to be men. In the, in, in the King James Version, it says, quit you like men. Quit you like men. In other words, be men. Be strong. Be steadfast. You're, you're in a battle. And, and, and that's what Paul is saying here. The scene he's talking about, it's a battlefield. You know, the, the world is a battlefield for the Christian. Paul's like the commander-in-chief right now. He's exhorting the troops, and he says that, that you're surely on the verge of war. And he says, the outcome is critical. Stand fast, be strong, be like men, and, and, and don't give in. Don't give a foot of ground to the enemy. The lookouts and the guards are to keep a sharp look, the lookout, because the enemy is very crafty, and he's totally corrupt. He has no boundaries. There's nothing that Satan will not do to destroy the work of God. When the attack comes, hold the ground, hold your ground. No ground is to be surrendered. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's the purpose of Satan, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he's doing a lot of that today. The enemy will be quick to take away to take over and take advantage of any retreat, anything that we give up. One step back, he steps forward and he takes that territory. Paul is basically saying bravery and courage has to be our battle cry. They must be men. They must be strong. There's no room for weakness now, Paul says. Especially now in the times that we live as well. Now, Paul will make some personal comments in verses 15 through 18. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, and that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. He says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Archaicus, for what was lacking in your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men." These were the first people to be one to Christ in Achaia. And Paul had baptized them himself, according to 1 Corinthians 1.16, instead of leaving them to be baptized, or I'm sorry, instead of leaving it to somebody else. They became important leaders in the church because they devoted themselves to serving the Lord. Whenever they saw a need, and this is another thing, servants, we need to learn. And, and I've shared it before. Whenever they saw a need, they went to work to meet it without being asked. And then I've said it before. You know, it, it, you, you may be in a particular ministry, and maybe 
the other ministry is busy. They're doing something. They got something going on. Maybe they could use some more help. If you see that or you go, go ask, hey, guys, can we help you? Is there something that we can do to help you with whatever you're doing? But it's not, well, that's their ministry and I'm in this ministry and we don't have anything to do with each other. No. We're serving together. We're serving each other and we're serving one Lord for the same purpose, for the kingdom and the glory of God. That's what we're doing. And that's what these people were, were leaving that great example. Wherever they saw a need, they went to work, man, to take care of that need, and they didn't wait to be asked or told. They were Paul's helpers. And it says they labored with them. The word labored means toiled to the point of exhaustion. When was the last time you toiled to the point of exhaustion for God? What a wonderful thing when an entire family serves the Lord faithfully in the local church. Adam Clark said this, work yourself to death for the Lord and pray yourself back to life again. I love that. Stephanus was joined by Fortunatus and Achaicus as an official committee that was sent from Corinth to Ephesus to talk with Paul about church problems. Paul saw them in a picture. He saw in them a type of the church. Their love to Paul, made up for Paul's absence from Corinth. He couldn't be with them to experience their love, but you know, their, their notice of love to them made up for that. But these men did more than, than, than share problems with Paul. They also refreshed his spirit, it says there, and they brought him blessings. This is a good place to encourage church members to refresh and encourage their leaders. And too many times, believers share only problems and burdens or comp- complaints with their leaders their spiritual leaders, and rarely shared the blessings. Paul encouraged the church to honor this very special family, to submit to their spiritual leadership and its right to honor faithful Christians if God gets the glory. That's the key, if God gets the glory, not the people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul said this, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. In other words, he says, faithful servants are to be commended. It means highly esteemed. Look at verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Aquila and Priscilla, they were a a wonderful couple. They were a dedicated husband and wife team whose lives and ministries crossed paths with Paul's. Paul met them at Corinth because they were tent makers like Paul. This godly couple, Priscilla and Aquila, had been kicked out of Rome because Aquila was a Jew. But, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, man, that's, that's wrong, and that's, that's this, and that's that. And, and, but you know what? It was, it was part of God's plan. They would have never come across the path of Paul. So they were kicked out of Rome. But again, a part of, and a part of God's plan to get them to Corinth where they would cross paths with Paul. You see, this couple's name is found six times in the New Testament. They worked together serving the Lord and helping Paul. When Paul moved from Corinth to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla packed up their bags, their business too. They went with them and they helped them in the founding of the church there. 
This couple was so talented and efficient that Paul left them there to oversee the ministry when he returned to Antioch. And it was while they were there at Ephesus Ephesus that they assisted Apollos in understanding better the truth of the gospel. I mean, every local church can be so thankful for husbands and wives like Aquila and Priscilla, people who work together in serving the Lord and helping each other and helping others. One of the Ephesian churches met in their house, which shows they were people that were given to hospitality. Romans 16.4 says that at one time, Aquila and Priscilla risked their own lives to help Paul, to save Paul. They risked their lives to save Paul. But Priscilla and Aquila didn't stay in Ephesus because when Paul wrote to the believers at Rome, he greeted this couple. And once again, they had a church meeting in their house. This extraordinary couple had left Rome. They were now back in Ephesus, this time to help Timothy like they did Paul. How many couples today, think of it, how many couples today would move as often as Priscilla and Aquila did just to be able to serve the Lord better? And remember, wherever they moved, they had to move their business too. So that had to be tough. People with this kind of dedication and sacrifice, they're hard to find. But man, they're such a great blessing to the local church. And then in verse 20, notice it says there, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The holy kiss mentioned in verse 20 was a common way of greeting men. Uh, greeting each other. The men would kiss the men, the women would kiss the women. You know, one wrote one commentator said, if Paul were writing to the Western churches, he would say, shake hands with each other. But nonetheless, this was, this was what, they, in South America they do that. They kiss on each cheek in their greetings. Verse 21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Paul usually dictated his letters and then took the pen and he signed them. He also added his benediction of grace at the end which was a mark that the letter was authentic. Verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The word accursed here comes from uh, the Aramaic word anathema. In other words, to not love Jesus Christ means to not believe in him. And unbelievers are accursed. And then the word come there at the end of verse 22. It comes from the Aramaic word maranatha, which means our Lord come. Let's close with verses 23 through 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now remember, when we started the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul was pretty tough on the Corinthians with all of the difficulties they were having. He was being stern. He was, you know, telling what needed to be done. Uh, As Solomon says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. He told them the truth. He told them what they were doing wrong. He told them what they needed to do to fix it. But notice how he closes the letter. He says, my love be with you all. Though he had to be stern, it doesn't mean that he, was, he didn't love them. A lot of times people take sternness and harshness or, or constructive criticism as it's not being, it's not being loved. He closes the letter by making sure he let them know that he loved them. Paul shared a lot of spiritual wisdom here. May we receive it with meekness, but more importantly, may we put it into practice.
for the glory of God and the good of the church. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for this, again, Lord, for this wonderful word, God. And Lord, help us to take these things to heart. Father, help us to put them into practice that, Lord, you would be glorified and that your church would become more powerful, that it would become more effective. God, that we would do greater works, all for the kingdom of God, all for your glory. Father, we thank you for the offering that we'll receive today, Lord. Again, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you how you take care of us, God. You're, just, you're, you're so good to us, Lord. Again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.